Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. I'm here in the Barker Gallery of the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art with my guest today, artist and activist Deanna Cohen. Cohen is one of 30 artists featured in this exhibit, Plastic Entanglements, Ecology, Aesthetics, Materials, on view at the Schnitzer through December 30th, 2018. Besides being an artist, Cohen is the co-founder and CEO of the Plastic Pollution Coalition, a global alliance of hundreds of individuals, organizations, and businesses working to stop plastic pollution and to raise awareness about the toxic impact of single-use and disposable plastics. Cohen gave a lecture titled Plastic Pollution Art to Action at the U of O on October 17, 2018 as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2018-19 O'Fallon Memorial Lecturer in Art and American Culture. The lecture was part of the Common Good series. Welcome. Thank Thanks you. for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So first, um, tell us about your background and how you came first to be an artist. Hmm. Let's see. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and uh, grew up spending a lot of time with my family going out to the Pacific Ocean swimming, body surfing. Um, and my dad is a documentary filmmaker, so I also spent a lot of time out with my dad. And uh, when he wanted to hang out in a cafe, particularly oftentimes in Paris when I was a child, <laughs> he would occupy me by handing me pieces of paper and a ballpoint pen and saying, why don't you draw for a while? So I would say that is how I first started drawing. And, um, and I just grew up really feeling that I was an artist and that I could always imagine things and make them. So that would be the easiest answer. <laughs> so how did you come to start making art out of plastic bags? So originally I... Um, I was at UCLA in the mid-80s, and I, I started the school as a biology major um, and received a lot of compliments for my drawings, my lab drawings, <laughs> and was told that I would make a great scientific illustrator, uh -huh. at which point I thought, you know, I also had worked in the molecular biology laboratory this summer after my freshman year, and that also made me realize after reading a book about um, the discovery of the, the form of the double helix by James Watson, that he was functioning like a curator or an artist. And I thought, I don't want to have to get a PhD in order to be creative. I want to be creative now. <laughs> and so I began the process my second year of school uh, of transferring to the art department. And I studied painting. Of course, in the art, art program at UCLA, you, we had all these tremendous teachers, and the department had kind of been taken over by, uh, by the new forms department. It was a bunch of teachers, hmm. Nancy Rubin and Chris Burden and um, Paul McCarthy, and a, a lot of teachers who were talking about how painting was dead. So I was studying painting at a time when my teachers had announced that painting was dead. Um, and when I graduated from school, I had been working a lot with oils and working with watercolors. I began to do a series of watercolor images of insects. Mm -hmm. And I began to sell those. And those paid my rent for two years after college. Funny, right? Um, and that brought me to uh, doing some work with, in collage. And I originally began with brown paper bags from the market because I thought the colors were really beautiful. And I just began to deconstruct them along the lines that they were constructed. And kind of with a scientific perspective, look at things that were printed on the bags, text, mm -hmm. numbers, people's names, um, 
messages. Uh, and then I began to sew those and use the, the needle and thread as a drawing element. And at some point, I added a plastic bag that had an image of a botanical, like a, fl a flower, again, kind of a scientific illustration, mm -hmm. of a flower with the name in Latin. And I added that into a piece, and I had this total epiphany that plastic was this incredible material, again, that appeared to be free all around me that I could work with, and it came in all of these different colors that really harkened back to what I'd been doing with oil paints and watercolors. Uh, and so I embarked on that road, which has now been almost 30 years mm -hmm. of making work out of plastic bags that I cut up and sew back together. So when you enter this exhibit, the first piece that you see is your piece, which is called Post-Consumer Mandela. Tell us about that piece, and also I'm particularly interested in how you made it. How's, how's it constructed? Right. So originally when I first started making uh, the work out of plastic bags, I thought that I needed to stretch it over canvas or panels. Mm -hmm. And I was really thinking, I, I'm going to say in a limited way, about the materials I was using and really about formal presentation for work in galleries and things like that. So um, I was really thinking thinking as a painter of these kind of quadrants or squares as ways to display my work. On occasion, I would get really wild and do an oval. You know, <laughs> that was wild. Um, and what happened is after I'd been working with the material for about, mm, about 10 years, um, well, two things happened. After I'd been working with plastics for about seven years, some of the bags that I was using in some of my pieces started to fissure and break apart. Mm -hmm. And I got excited and I thought it meant that the plastic was ephemeral and organic like us. So I began to look into that and slowly came to realize that's not what was happening. It was just breaking into smaller pieces and getting into the environment. So that was realization one. Mm -hmm. Then I also realized that I was, I, I was really struggling to, not struggling, but I felt committed to making beautiful things. And I wasn't sure that I should only be making beautiful things. So I began to try and attempt to make ugly things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and in doing that, I also had an opportunity to show my work in Spain. And there was a problem because the budget for the museum, it was a the contemporary culture museum um, in Barcelona, only had enough funding to bring these large wooden panel pieces of mine to the show, but not enough funding to return them. And that's when I realized I should be not letting, not limiting myself in the way that I use the material, but that I could actually make pieces and start utilizing the handles on the bags and make pieces that could fold up very small, but then open up into these enormous pieces. And so Post-Consumer Mandala was from a first group that I did and an exhibition that I did in 2001, mm -hmm. where that work, in 1999 I did my first show of the work. And then in 2001, I, things started coming out of the frames and becoming more uh, misshapen or oddly shaped. And I also realized that I could use the material as more refer to textiles or banners mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. flags or things like that. And I could um, have it drape, become more multidimensional. I could also suspend things from the ceiling. I, I, all of a sudden, like all limits were off. And that was very exciting to, to take this material that I was already interested in, interested in it kind of in a push-pull, love-hate way. Um, but really when I started interested in it because of the, color, the colors were so remarkable and the, and the irony of the things that were printed on the bags, plants and trees and flowers and 
text and fonts and sayings, mm -hmm. and that I could take these things and cut them up and put them back together and say whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. So it really opened up a whole new thing for me. So in making post-consumer mandala, uh, I originally was just working on pieces and I'd work, I'd make very large pieces or medium-sized pieces on the floor in my mm -hmm. studio and painstakingly tape every little bit together and then as I sewed them by hand with this basting stitch, remove the tape. So it was this kind of laborious process and it felt very much like quilting, <laughs> um, something like that. And in fact, when I made this piece and some of the first pieces I made, they were also, again, still quadrants and vertical or horizontal and very much like maps, almost grids. Everything was straight. I wasn't combining things in these kind of, you know, angled um, ways. Everything was very, very particular. And these are things probably only I would know because it's been a, a long process of mm -hmm. working with the material. But uh, when I originally made this piece, at first I, I, I played with it in my studio. I played with exhibiting it, and in fact, I have exhibited it in the past vertically. So just mm -hmm. hanging it from um, this side mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. here, you know, vertically, so that those are at the top, and it's draping down. Sorry, it's draping down. Um, and when I do suspend it that way, you can more clearly see that there is a mandala form in uh -huh. the center of it, uh -huh. uh, in the upper center of it. And I had made it after I'd gone and spent a couple days in Mountain View in Northern California listening to the Dalai Lama speak. Um, and it really made me think about, I was thinking about how we live in this modern world of consumption where everything's being marketed to us with candy colors all the time. And I'm not a person who watches a lot of television, but when I do tune into television, it just seems like every time I look the speed of all the commercials and the speed of everything, even in films, motion pictures, it just increases exponentially so that everything's like magical realism with things flying through the air, especially for kids. I mean, it's just, it's kind of cuckoo. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very creative and imaginative, but it also, you know, is a world where everything's flying at you. So I was thinking about a lot of those things when I made this piece. That was a long answer. Okay, <laughs> no problem, no problem. <laughs> so it's the first piece that when people enter the gallery, uh, and so it's the first piece they see for this show, Plastic Entanglements, which originates at the Palmer Museum at the University of Penn. Uh, UPenn. Yeah. Um, and, uh, no, Penn State. Penn State, yeah, yeah. Sorry. sorry, Penn State. Thank you for Maybe that. Maybe say that again. Yeah, Penn State. Yeah. Um, Palmer Museum at Penn State University. Anyway. Um, why, why are shows like this um, important in terms of raising consciousness about plastic pollution? Um, I mean, it's interesting for me, and, and this has to do with creating the coalition as well. I think that that is maybe not for all artists and maybe not for all art, but that's part of the job. That's part of what art has the power to do. Mm -hmm. Art has the power to and not just visual art, but you know, performance and music and film and books and all different kinds of art, uh, dramatic performance, has the power to connect with and communicate things to people in other parts of your body. You know, so not just a cerebral thing where you're receiving information and it's not just a talking head coming at you. Visual art you know, resonates for people on all different levels. For example, there are pieces in this exhibition, for example, Chris Jordan's photos, that, you know, the first time you see 
one of Chris Jordan or Susan Middleton's images of a desiccated adolescent albatross from Midway Atoll in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where the body is actually broken down and degraded and gone back to the earth and you're left with a pile of rubble, a pile of Coca-Cola bottle caps and recognizable plastic Bic lighters, toothbrushes, combs, um, bottle caps, etc. When you see something like that, it hits you. I mean, for me, when I first saw that work, it hit me in my stomach. It hit me in my chest. You know, I think that art has the power to communicate things in emotional ways that uh, simply giving people information does not. So, uh, so that is why I think that an exhibition like Plastic Entanglements is so important because it does resonate and communicate with people who may not, may not receive that information any other way. Yeah. And, and it creates thought. So you, you started to tell the story of how after you had been working with plastic, it started to break down. Tell us that part of the story and how it led to your activism as an anti-plastics, anti-plastic pollution yeah. activist. Yeah. Um, well, you know, at first I thought that it was organic and ephemeral and I got excited about that. And uh, when I began to look into it and learn more about the material, I realized, no, it was just breaking apart into smaller pieces and not all of it, just some of it. I mean, I have pieces I've made that are going to last for 400 years, uh, which is great if you want artwork to be archival, I guess. Um, you know, but when we say something lasts forever, what does that mean? I mean, in a sense, plastic lasts forever. If a plastic bottle is gonna last 400 years and it's been designed for us to use it for five minutes, <laughs> you know, that is longer than a human life, maybe perhaps longer than three human lives or four human lives. That is forever, from my perspective. So. Um, so just the more I began to learn about the material, uh, I also started hearing about this great Pacific garbage patch that I was trying to imagine out, out in the Pacific Ocean. And I started hearing this man named Captain Charles Moore, and he had given a TED Talk. And you know, just learning about him, I tried to reach him. I called him on the phone. We had a kind of heated um, uh, discourse, you know. Uh, where I said, hey, I, I'm an artist. I, I've been putting together a plan. I want to go out to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch with a cargo ship and decommissioned fishing trawlers and a, a chipping machine and a, coal, a crane and cold molding machine. And I'm going to bring a bunch of friends who are surfers because we're all really concerned about what we're seeing in the ocean and, and clean this thing up. And Charlie was like, you can't clean it up. And I said, look, but I think you know, we could raise a lot of awareness and then more people would know about it and that would be really great. We could use the material. It's a valuable material. Why don't we make bricks out of it? Let's do this. Let's do that. So I was super excited and Charlie's like, you can't clean it up. And he just kept saying that to me and I finally looked at him and I said, you know, it's fine if you say that because I think you're going to challenge a lot of people to try and come up with ways to clean it up. But I disagree with you right now. And uh, I think that some kid will come along and try and figure out how to clean it up. And now a bunch of kids have come along who are trying to clean it up. Um, and we'll see how they do. But at this point, and Plastic Pollution Coalition, we, we co-founded it in 2009 um, in the summer and had our soft launch in the fall of 2009. Uh, we're over 750 NGOs and businesses now around the world. I think 60 different countries are represented in our coalition. Uh, the Teamsters 
emailed us and asked if they could join the same day as the Girl Scouts mm. of America. <laughs> um, but, you know, at this point, I have to say I kind of agree with Charlie. Mm -hmm. like, I don't think that cleanup is the best place for us to focus our energy. Um, and I've become educated and more aware about the toxic impact to human health and to animal health and what we're doing to the environment. And this whole idea that there is some away that we put things, there is no away. Uh, we just shared some footage yesterday of the first flush, which is the first big rain in Los Angeles, and all of this plastic pollution that was washing down Bayona Creek. And it's the mouth of the LA River going out into the Pacific Ocean. And it's just shocking. And people wrote back and said, oh my gosh, where is this? Is this China? Is this Indonesia? No. Is this India? No, but I can show you images from those places as well. This is Los Angeles. We've seen it all over the world. It's not a problem that's unique to Asia or Southeast Asia. And interestingly, in brand audits that are going on right now, and 239, the data from 239 brand audits uh, that were conducted recently, the top corporate polluters, so these are the corporations and companies that are making what is found in all these different beach cleanups and cleanups around the world. The number one is Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. PepsiCo's number two. Nestle's is number three. Unilever's in there. I mean, they're all there, the top corporate polluters. And really, what I'd like to see happen is I'd like to see policy and legislation that holds all of these big corporations responsible for 100% of their packaging and their products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that their RD departments already have other materials and that they will begin to use them very quickly if they become responsible for this stuff. But, you know, the last 50 years have been spent by projects like Keep America Beautiful or Keep Blank Beautiful industry uh, groups that are industry backed, um, creating messaging, I'll call it propaganda, mm -hmm. uh, with messaging like give a hoot, don't pollute, put it in the bin don't be a litter bug, you know, and in doing this, we've put the onus and the responsibility onto the public and our children and our grandchildren and children who aren't born yet. And they're also being physically poisoned by the chemicals that are used to make plastic. So yeah, I'm pretty passionate about it. So tell me, so, so tell me some of the things that the coalition does. Well, so the coalition, uh, when we first created the coalition, our, our first goal was to get people to call it what it is, which is when we're talking about plastic or when we're talking about marine debris and 70 to 90% of the marine debris is plastic, let's actually call it what it is. It's plastic, it's plastic pollution. So that was our first goal. And I think that we're beginning to see that that's really been achieved on a global scale. Um, it's being used by governmental agencies at the UN, um, at the State Department, at the European Commission, in the European Union, and in all kinds of policy that's being drafted now by governments. So, big win. Uh, we also took the model of the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, and added a fourth R onto the front, uh, which is whenever possible, refuse, single-use plastic. So, in order to join our coalition initially, those were the things that we asked. We asked people to call it plastic pollution when you were talking about plastic and to focus on the idea of refusing it and to really focus energy on all pressure points that would create source reduction. So we do our best to help amplify the work of coalition members, help co-create or collaborate or share 
guides that have been created. We partnered with Made Safe and created a healthy baby guide that mm -hmm. came out a little over a year ago that's free, you can download. We created a, um, a campus plastic reduction guide with Post Landfill Action Network. They're part of our coalition. They're a group that was started at the University of New Hampshire and they produce a, um, a campus zero waste conference mm -hmm. every fall. It's coming up in November. It'll be in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. So, so really looking at ways that we can either help support best practices, engagement, work that's being done by coalition members, share it with a broader audience, keep it as diverse and as inclusive as possible, uh, and also share videos, animations, books, mm -hmm. feature films. Um, we've advised on many projects and, and continue to look for these things. We have uh, about 150 notable coalition members. The first people who joined us were professional surfers and snowboarders mm -hmm. and chefs, mm -hmm. um, but also filmmakers, visual artists, musicians, actors, actresses. Uh, and some some leaders, country leaders of countries, politicians, et cetera, who are very interested in looking for solutions. So, my daughter is a college kid, and she's uh, she's completely with you. She's fanatically anti-plastic cool. pollution, and she's constantly frustrated because she goes into grocery stores, you know, and she can't escape it. Right. I mean, she, you know, she, she lives in Tacoma. She, you know, she searched for one store that sold bulk foods where she could bring containers. Did she find it? She did. Great. Um, but what, I mean, there are many, many communities where you can't find those places, right? So what, you know, and I, and I, I take your point that pressure needs to be brought to bear on these corporations. Mm -hmm. How do people, how do regular people, people like my daughter, right. what, did, what should they try to do to help this problem? So I would say regular people, which is all of us, a couple things. One, rather than feeling like it's so hard and it's so difficult, I wake up every day and I think, wow, it's going to be a challenge today. Oh, I've got to get on a plane and fly from Los Angeles to Eugene. I'll bring my reusable steel cup with me. I'll bring my reusable bamboo utensil set. I'll bring this, I'll bring that. And guess what? I used them. Mm -hmm. I used them at the airport before I got on my flight. I used them on the flight and asked them to put something in my cup for me to drink out of. So I didn't create any plastic pollution in my travel here. And that was fun. And it felt uh, exciting to me. Like it, mm -hmm. it felt like I had accomplished something. So in the same way, I think, what can we do in our local communities? I realize I'm totally spoiled. I live in Southern California. We have farmer's markets all year round and we have fresh produce all year round. I show up with my own baskets, my own bags. I bring glass jars. I bring little tiny bags. If I don't want to purchase little tiny cloth or muslin bags to use, I use bags from shoes that I bought or some, something I was gifted that came in a little cloth bag. I just reuse everything. Um, so that's fun. I also really do try to know which markets I'm going to go to to find if I want to buy milk, milk and glass or almond milk and glass, um, fresh cold pressed juices that are packaged in glass where you pay a deposit for the bottle. You turn it over, you get that deposit back when you come back. Um, I have found a couple different places I can get yogurt in glass when I want yogurt. Uh, and then also if you eat meat or cheese or fish or poultry, knowing where you can go, either with your own container or your own packaging. Same thing with to-go food. There's your favorite Chinese restaurant or Thai restaurant somewhere where you live. You get takeaway from them maybe once a week or once every couple weeks. 
starting to have a relationship with them or a place that you get lunch from, mm -hmm. even on a campus every day, where you could go with your own steel or it, you know, if you need to use plastic, a plastic reusable container, I, I would recommend not using any plastic at all, even if it's a dense reusable plastic, um, but glass or a different kind of container that you can put things in uh, for takeaway. So you know, I just really look at it as a challenge, mm -hmm. but I totally get that there are people in communities where they have no choice. And I think, again, what we all need to do there is how do we make choice available to everyone? And how do we help nurture farmers markets and um, farm to table, farm to market food in our local communities? And how do we create uh, an environment where you're, when you go in and you say, oh, I'd like to buy that in glass, you're not just met with, we only have giant plastic one liter soda bottles here. So now I realize that it's a problem, but it's, it's a new problem. And if you look at imagery from the market, even in the 70s when I was a kid, everything was in glass, mm -hmm. even soda pop, all of it was in glass. Mm -hmm. I'm not recommending that people drink soda pop, I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, especially as a student, you can save a lot of money by investing in your own cup or bringing something from home. And most people don't know this, uh, but you will at many places get a small discount every time you come in with your own reusable cup. So if you're supposed to have a lid, then maybe invest in one that's got a lid. But over time, you will save a lot of money. I don't know if you guys have AM, PM, mini marts and things like that mm -hmm. in Oregon. But I know that when I drive from Southern California to Northern California, and I, if I stop at a gas station or a place that has that, I come in with my own cup and I say, hi, what can I buy to drink You know that I can put in my own cup? And they'll say coffee, tea, something from the soda fountain, iced tea. And so I get one of those. And then when I go up to pay, uh, they say, OK, that'll be 99 cents. And I always ask, do you mind if I ask you how much it would have cost if I didn't have my own cup, and I've had them many times say to me, it would be $1.99. Mm. So $1.99 versus 99 cents, mm. I'm sorry, that's a dollar that I just saved. If I were a regularly driving, commuting somewhere, or a truck driver you know, on the I-5, I would invest in my own reusable cup because I would be saving money all the time. So I think as a student, it's really great to do things like that. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, just a couple of minutes left, so this will probably be my last question. I know that one of the things that you do is you um, spend time with children to try to educate them about plastic pollution. Want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, so also on the Plastic Pollution Coalition website, there's a whole resources section that has curriculum divided into different age groups for students from pre-K all the way through university that involves art projects and theater projects and, again, films and books, if anybody's looking for info like mm -hmm. that. Um, when I've worked with kids, I've had the opportunity, I had the opportunity in Spain one year, I was invited by the Benjamin Franklin International School, and I worked with kindergarten through fifth graders, 200 of them. We had a month, and we made a giant mural that was called Ocean of Plastic, mm. and it's about um, 10, 10 feet, 10 and a half feet long by 8 feet high or something like that. Mm. Um, and it folds up into a medium-sized FedEx box. And I know this because it's currently being shown at, um, I think it's the U.S. Embassy or U.S. Information Service in, um, in San Salvador. Mm. Um, but it's been shown in a lot of different places. They showed it at the State Department in Washington, D.C. as well. So it travels well, and it's been shown. And I made that with the kids. And the kids 
all made different animals from the ocean. We talked about the ocean and we made the entire thing out of plastic and plastic bags. And we used that month to talk about how animals in the ocean might mistake in a plastic bag for a jellyfish, a turtle might mistake in it. We talked about what other animals we would see in the ocean. We got to go see the Disney film, the ocean film. And there's a sequence in that film that has plastic pollution being shown under the water and the impact of that. So really, I found when you're working with kids, kids are so used to learning mm -hmm. thousands of new things every day mm -hmm. that they just get it. Mm -hmm. So I had kids come up to me, like a third grader come up to me and say, I went home and I told my mom that we can't use plastic bags anymore. We can't take them from the market because they're killing sea turtles. And I said, oh, okay, what did your mom say? And he said, well, my mom said, okay. 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 <laughs> okay, so listen, I'm sorry to say I've got to stop you okay. there. Um, that's an excellent story to end on. It's a very hopeful moment, and I hope that this continues. I'm very encouraged by my daughter, and I think a lot of younger people are really committed to this project. Thanks for talking to us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Deanna Cohen, one of 30 artists featured in the exhibit Plastic Entanglements, Ecology, Aesthetics, Materials, on view at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art through December 30th, 2018. Cohen gave a lecture titled Plastic Pollution, Art to Action at the U of O on October 17th, 2018, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2018-19 O'Fallon Memorial Lecturer in Art and American Culture. The lecture was part of the Common Good series. Thanks so much for watching.